The unofficial end to summer is here. School has started for most, football season is upon us, and soon the leaves will be changing color. At the DSR Network, we remain as busy as ever with a full slate of podcasts scheduled for the fall. In the coming weeks, we'll be launching two new shows with new hosts, creating even more content for our members. Members receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, bonus content, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of September, you'll receive 20% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code SCHOOL at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code SCHOOL. Thank you for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and uh, it is my pleasure today to be joined by our friend, David Korn. David, uh, as you know, is the Washington Bureau Chief of Mother Jones. Uh, David is regularly a commentator on television, uh, and uh, he writes books periodically. His most recent book, American Psychosis, a historical investigation of how the Republican Party went crazy, is now in paperback, and rumor has it, updated uh i presume you have updated um the new stuff and not the historical stuff or maybe maybe you found some secret dwight eisenhower on acid um uh (laughs) revelations that none of us knew about uh no i did not find ike on acid it's um new stuff bringing us up to close to the present day, but certainly the present year, um, and what, what ha- what's happening with, with the Trump Party post January six. Um, so, so and, uh, am I to conclude that you still think the Republican Party is crazy? Um, yes, and and the and the point of the book wasn't to show that it's. You know, crazy in the, in the in the present tense, um, and that it's in the, you know it's become a cult and is, is in the hands of a of a demagogue and and the the, the major base of the, the heart of the party are right wing extremists and conspiracy theorists and sometimes racists. Um, it was to show that it's always been there. This has always these have always been always been strong elements. Within the Republican Party, the Republican Party establishment has always encouraged and exploited far-right extremism. It just often kept it more to the uh, shadows and off to the side. And Donald Trump came along and put it smack dab center stage. And I have to say, the past you know week or two, I mean, the the paperback just came out 
this week. And, and you know it's hard to promote paperbacks because they're new but not really new. But you hope that the news cycle helps you a bit. And I see again and again people on TV and write, you know, political, political journalists writing that if only, if only the Republican Party could get rid of Donald Trump through, you know, the primaries, through indictments or who knows what, they would all just rise up. Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy would join hands and declare that Donald Trump is no longer their guy, that they could all get back to normal, that they could go back to your father's GOP. And my point has been that your father's GOP wasn't your father's GOP, that Trumpism or some form of it, whether it was Bircherism or Bertherism or Newt Ginridge or the, or the Christian Coalition and the New Right and the Religious Right, that it's you know, the Tea Party, Sarah Palinism, there's always been this component of the party that is based in irrationality, motivated by fear, grievance, paranoia, conspiracy theories, and the party has always, always played to that. That hasn't changed. And that, in fact, you can, if you can measure it, it probably has gotten worse with the advent of Trump. And also this week, uh, on this point, Mitt Romney helped me, which I, which I appreciate a lot, because I was the guy who revealed the 47% tape in 2012, and Mitt Romney might, you know, not want to be so helpful to me in particular. But he did, you know, this interview with McKay Cop, uh, Coppins for The Atlantic and for McKay's forthcoming biography of Romney. And it turns out he had been meeting with McKay weekly, biweekly for the last two years and used him kind of as a father confessor. And he talked about how much he uh, hated Trump and felt alienated within the party and that Mitch McConnell and others thought, felt the same about Trump, but they were too chicken shit to to talk about it publicly or to do anything about it. And then he had this moment of reflection in the story that appeared in The Atlantic in which he said, I have to wonder if these elements of Trumpism have always been within the party and what role and whether whether mainstream Republicans like me had a role in encouraging that and, and allowing it to happen. And the answer is yes and yes. Mitt Romney, please read my book. But it was just really, you know, intriguing to me that he was now not just looking at the present Trump um, obsessed Republican Party, but now looking at the roots. And that's what I try to describe in the book from McCarthyism to John to Goldwater using the Birchers to Nixon with his Southern strategy, making um, a partnership with, with Southern segregationists and racists, to Ronald Reagan embracing the religious right, which had people in it calling for the execution of um, gays and lesbians, to George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush embracing Pat Robertson, who was, and you know, I know people like to watch them, you know, he has his fans, he was an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist. Um, who said that George H.W. Bush was part of a satanic cabal to impose one world order uh, and one world government that also included, of course, the Jewish banking family of the Rothschilds. 
Um, and you had Newt Gingrich riling up the militias and promoting crazy conspiracy theories about the Clintons that weren't true in league with Rush Limbaugh. And you had uh, Sarah Palin saying that Barack Obama was a terrorist and calling him a communist and a socialist that led to the Tea Party. And we had Glenn Beck, Glenn Beck on Fox News every night saying that Obama was a secret socialist Muslim uh, born in Kenya who wanted to destroy America so he could become its emperor. I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what Glenn Beck said every night. And John Boehner and other prominent Republicans from Congress would come on his show and basically validate and legitimize him. Um, and this all leads to this guy named Donald Trump who saw all this and said, yeah, these guys have been doing it on the side to bring Tea Party votes in and things like that. I'm just going to go straight at it, throw them the red meat. Um, so, I, you know, it's very and that's the history that I describe in the book. And now you have people like Mitt Romney, who's no dummy. And I think in a lot of ways, there's a lot of decency to Mitt Romney for all, you know, I think some acts of political cowardice over the years. I mean, I tend to think that you'd love him as a neighbor. And on a snowy day, you'd get up at 8 a.m. and he always would have, you know, have, have, have shoveled your walk in your drive, driveway. I got, got up at five and I saw there was snow there, so I'm helping you out. I mean, I think there's a decency to this guy, but the, the fact that only now he's seeing where Trumpism came from. I mean, it, it's a reckoning for the party. He's back during his way into it, but it just, you know, it's, you know, and he's, a, he's not a dumb guy. He's a smart guy and he's kind of coming around to understanding this, um, which is why, you know, if, if I had his address, I'd send him a copy of the book free. Well, that's been, maybe he read the book. Maybe you've changed Mitt Romney. Maybe you've caused <laughs> him to do this deep reflection, but you know, I think yeah, I, 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 I'm in the minority. I, I don't think Donald Trump is actually going to be the candidate at the end of the day next year. Ooh, bury the lead. Yeah, well, but, but you know, who is? Well, I, I don't know, and that's okay. what I'm going to get to. But but the reason I don't is because I I just think we've never seen anybody go through legally what he's about to go through. Um, and he is a very volatile guy who says crazy things and does crazy things. And I think, you know, there's a fairly decent chance that he's not. Um, I could be wrong. But I believe that there are two possibilities if, that in this case, whether I'm right or wrong. One is Trump's not the candidate. He's replaced by somebody else currently out there running. The other is he loses next November and is replaced by somebody else because he's going to be in a world of legal hurt if he doesn't win real uh, re-election. So you got to look at who else is out there. Um, and I think that just supports your case. We had Mike Pence this week supporting Tuberville's block on military promotions because, you know, he he considers the abortion issue more important than national security. Um, we have, you know, uh, Ron DeSantis's uh, health commissioner this week um, going on the air and saying people shouldn't take COVID vaccine because it's bad for them, um, even though, the fall will bring a new wave of, of COVID. And in Florida, 
a place where there are a lot of old people, the potential for a lot of deaths. Um, and we can go down the list. You know, the good Republicans in this race, the 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 the, the decent ones, uh, you know, Chris Christie and and Asa Hutchison both have no support um, and aren't so great. You know, they both have supported Trump and they both supported some terrible policies. So, I mean, I think, unfortunately, the proof of your book, the epilogue of epilogues, is what's going to happen next. Do you agree with that? Uh, yeah, I'll agree with anything that supports the thesis of my book. Um, <laughs> so thank you, David. Uh, but no, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, this is not a supply issue. This is a demand issue. The reason why, you know, you know Trump is, is, is leader of the Republican Party is because tens of millions of, of Republican voters wanted what he had to sell. They, that's what they were looking for. That's what they yearned for. And now, according to the polls, half the party still, that's what they want. They do not want Chris Christie or Aza Hutchinson. They don't want Mike Pence. And they might have thought, some of them might have thought they wanted, wanted Ron DeSantis until they got a look at him. And now they don't want him either. They, I mean, Donald Trump, you know, lost uh, <laughs> kind of the last three, four elections, right? Uh, well, ever since he won, he leads the party to ruin. Um, he incites a riot. And since January 6th, he has hung out with race, with, with racists and anti-Semites. He endorsed the QAnon, the crazy QAnon conspiracy theory. He has said he will pardon the January 6th rioters. So he's endorsing political violence. He called for the suspension of the U.S. Constitution. So that he could be reinstated as president, um, you know, and that doesn't dissuade any of these supporters. Um, it's so he's delivering to the base what the base wants, and that's the problem. You know, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McCarthy, who are really, I think, had saw an opportunity and were eager to boot Trump aside after January six you know, for a nanosecond or two when they, you know, called him responsible for what happened. And um, and even Mitch McConnell let it be known that he might even vote for impeachment. The Democrats in the House moved ahead with it. Um, they quickly turned tail when they saw that Republican voters were going to stick with Trump. They didn't want to have a civil war and they didn't want to lose the money that comes from these Republican donors. Uh, so I think it's, you know, you know, Trump is, I mean, I wrote a piece a couple of days ago, Mother Jones, kind of predicated on, on my book called, you know, why the GOP can't quit Donald Trump. Hint, look at its history. Um, and he's not, I, I noted that, you know, he's not the problem. He's the manifestation of the problem. He's, he's not the disease. He's the symptom of the disease. He's taken advantage of the disease as a lot of, you know, con men do when it comes to medical problems. Like they try to sell you something, snake oil or whatever it might be to cure your ailments. So, um, and I, and I noted that if you don't understand what the disease is, you can't come up with an effective cure or treatment. So it's not that he's an outlier, an aberration who came in and stole the party from Mitt Romney. Um, he saw where the party's 
you know, base and backbone and heart was. And when he's gone, I don't think that changes that equation that much. Uh, it leaves more space for maneuvering at the top, right? People can, you know, try to appeal to that and without maybe going full out Trump. But that's still where the party is going to be. Um, and I don't know how, you know, the establishment folks are going to, you know, try to, you know, win it back or do anything. If you look at what's just with Kevin McCarthy, I was about to say poor, poor Kevin McCarthy, but really we can't have any sympathy for this guy. You know, the fix he's in on both impeachment and the pending government shutdown. He has no control over these irrational folks, Mar you know, and, and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates are calling the shots as much as anybody else in the House now. Uh, they're a reflection of where the party's at. So I have two follow-on questions on this. Um, the first of them goes to the fact when you talk about where the party is at, that a lot of times when we talk about Trump and Trumpism and MAGA and so forth, we think, one thinks, of, you know, sort of toothless rednecks wearing Make America Great Again hats who are too stupid to know better. Uh, I know we're not supposed to say that, but I'm telling you, that's what I think about sometimes. Um, but there's another group that supports them that is more pernicious, and it's arguably the group that ought to know better. We've seen the rise of right-wing plutocrats in Silicon Valley, Elon Musk, Peter Thiel, some of these characters, who support Trump and Trumpism, um, possibly just because they think it'll be better for their pocketbooks. Who knows? But they, they actively support things that are bad for democracy and pro-authoritarian. I just saw it today, after having four days of almost being sympathetic to Aaron Rodgers, that Woody Johnson, the owner of the New York Jets, is going to be out there raising money for Donald Trump, calling his friends, saying, don't abandon Donald Trump. Um, you know, there are plenty of folks on Wall Street who are supporting Donald Trump, uh, even though he's a criminal, it's bad for democracy, it's a bad look, he's a bad guy. Um, what about them? Why are they? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Woody Johnson was Donald Trump's ambassador to the UK because he raised so much money for him. So uh, it's not surprising that, that he's doing that again. I mean, Donald Trump cut Woody's taxes, you know, pulled back on environmental regulations and promises to undo the um, climate change actions that, uh, which are very extensive, that Joe Biden managed to pass through um, Congress. So, um, you know, they're, they're the, the plutocrats, which is a great way to describe them, you know, seem to care more about their pocketbook than, you know, the foundation of democracy or the, you know, or the democratic culture of the country and are willing to, you know, back a guy who, you know, who incited and still supports the use of political violence, who is an inveterate liar and a reprobate, who is, you know, has his own conflicts of interest with deals currently with Saudis in Oman 
And they just don't, you know, give a crap about these other things. They're Republicans. They want Republicans to do what Republicans always do. And they will happily make alliances with the Alex Joneses and and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, um, if that will keep their party uh, in, in power. It's, um, it, it, I don't know. It's sometimes I, I, you know, it's, it, you know, to be less analytical, maybe more emotional about it. Um, sometimes, it, you know, it, it feels like uh, it's really hard to understand where some of these people are coming from. Don't, did you not see January 6th? Do you not understand what it means when Donald Trump um, invites someone who's known to be anti-Semitic to dinner? When he endorses crazy QAnon stuff, which calls, you know, which, you know, says that Democrats are eating babies, that when you do all this, that you are, you are, you are encouraging the craziness and you are um, legitimizing the craziness. Um, And, you know, you're willing to, to, to do this. Because you'll get better tax policies or, be, you know, it's, it, you know, it, and it's the same thing with the evangelicals, right? They made a deal with the devil here quite literally because he promised them uh, uh, anti-abortion judges and nothing else seems to matter to them. Um, so it's, you know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a kind of what, you know, radicalized base that is not actually, I think, you know, the, the toothless rednecks that you, that you talk about. When I went to Trump rallies in 2016, I was, you know, you know, not, not surprised, but I, I, it was noticeable that most of the people there had jobs. You know, they were middle class, upper middle class. They were, you know, and there was a great book that came out. I went, oh God, I quote it in my book. Uh, I think it's called, uh, Ident- Identity Politics. It was an analysis of the Trump vote in 2016. And, you know, they found that it wasn't economic grievance that drove most Trump voters. It was immigration and issues of race. So it's people who don't want to push one for English and two for Spanish. They, you know, it's, it's that cultural dislocation, which has, a, you know, I think a racist component to it, um, sometimes greater, sometimes you know, smaller. That is, is, is driving a lot of the people at the base. And it, you know, if it, you know, and it's not, and it, it's not just, you know, people, you know, who have been fucked over by, by the economy. You know, it's some of that, but not, but this book found that it wasn't even a majority of that. So, um, I think we have to sort of look at this and understand the, the elements at play. And the, you know, there was just a study that came out that was written about in the Washington Post by Dan Balls. That said, what you know divides America now between Democrats and Republicans are, are you know you take everything out, and it's mainly attitudes towards race. Um, so there's a lot of cultural stuff going on here, and I'm going to look up. The, if you ask the question, I'm going to look up that book. Um, Go ahead. Okay. Um, well, I, you know, I mean, I I just think it's really important to understand that there are a bunch of people who are rich people. And it extends all the way across to the Leonard Leos and the the others on, on on that side of the equation, who literally feel that the Constitution, our democracy, the values of the country, and our institution are all negotiable if it gets them lower taxes, um, which is 
astonishing. Um, and the people are so greedy that they're willing to fund a movement that feeds on racism and authoritarianism um, if they end up with more money in their bank accounts. Um, and well, it was the people and the people in power, and you know, I, you know, it, it's too easy to make these these comparisons, but it was the folks in power in 1933 in Germany that you know basically said to Hitler because they thought he would be a bulwark against the communists. You know, you know, you can become chancellor now. Yeah, it's your turn, Adolf Hitler. You know, he wasn't. You know, he, he, you know, the direction he took the country in was not a big surprise. He had, you know, telegraphed and written Mein Kampf by that point. So, um, but in yeah, that res- in that respect, it's you know, it's a little bit akin to what many people thought for a long time conservatism was about, which is the haves trying to keep what they have, um, and. Uh, that's 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 where we are. It's just particularly ugly. Although, as you point out, with the Nazi analogy, it's been every bit this ugly and uglier in other places at other times. So let me ask I, you one. Let, let me okay, ask before you, you ask the question, let me just yeah. give the right name of that book because I, I want to give these people credit. It's called Identity Crisis: The 2016 Campaign and the Battle for the Meaning of America by John Sides, Michael Tesler. And Lynn Vavrek, three academics, but it was great read if you want to understand the 2016 election. Okay, well, I, I hope people will go and look at that if they want to dig deeper. So let me ask you: we just have time for one more question here, but uh, let me ask you the question about another group that is, continues to mystify me in all of this, uh, because shortly before you um, joined us here, I was looking at some reports of the new host of Meet the Press having made the choice that her first guest would be Donald Trump, presenting her analysis of her conversation with Donald Trump um, in this kind of classic both sides way in which she was saying, well, you know, Trump thinks his ability as a deal maker will help him versus feckless Joe Biden, um, you know, particularly now that Biden is struggling with his son's gun rap, et cetera, et cetera. And I've seen other things in the past couple of days where people, um, you know, in the media are falling into all the traps they fell into in 2016, um, with Hunter Biden being the new version of Hillary's emails or Joe Biden's age being the new version of this, or I just am not that excited about, um, uh, you know, Kamala Harris the people saying that, um, being another uh, version of this, um, as though any vice president has ever been crucial to a presidential election, uh, and totally neglecting the fact that she's actually an excellent vice president. But but the media is there. These are the people you know you hang out with uh, in the fancy cocktail parties you go to. Some of them are <laughs> some of them some of them are your friends. Uh, and they just don't seem to understand that their obligation is to report the truth. They think it's to provide balance. Um, and it, you know, and, and then on top of it, they go, gee, how come Americans don't really understand that the economy is much better under Biden? Or how come 
Americans still, you know, support Trump. And I and I, I'm like, well, wait a minute. You're the ones telling the story. If people aren't getting it, you're not telling it right. But maybe I'm just cranky. Well, both things can be true, David. Thank you. Uh, and I have to say, one of the fanciest cocktail parties I've been to in the last year or two was your wonderful book party about a year oh, ago. Thank you. So um, <laughs> I don't get to too many of those, but uh, the ones I do go to, I, I, I are memorable. And you know, I haven't, you know, I, you know, I haven't seen the, the interview that, that Kristen Welker did, and you know, I, I'm an MSNBC analyst. You know, she's an NBC. I, I, I've known her a long time. And um, I want to see it before I, you know, dig into anything there. But I, but the problem, but the issue you have here that you raise here, you know, is is gigantic. And it not, you know, it's not just you know one interview here, one interview there. When this new website, um, the the messenger started, it did an interview with Donald Trump, and it was all about, well, why don't you like Ron DeSantis, you know, and why don't you think he can beat you? And it was all horse race type of questions, um, as opposed to, do, uh, will you pardon insurrectionists? Do you think that encourages political violence? You know, um, why, you know, do you, you insist on lying about 2020? There's still no evidence. I mean, if you're going to, you know, question, if you're going to even accept the premise that he deserves to be in the chair uh, in these interviews. And I've noticed this is, you know, you know, this week, Kevin McCarthy announced an, uh, an impeachment, the initiation of an impeachment inquiry. And I literally am writing a piece right now. I'm being delayed by our conversation uh, about how the media is going to handle this. And, you know, there are within every story in the Times about this in the Post, you know, four or five paragraphs down, there's the obligatory. But the Republicans have yet to produce any evidence tying Joe Biden to um, a crime or or, or or obvious wrongdoing. And, um, but then the whole article is about impeachment, impeachment, impeachment. And what the Republicans are trying to do, they did this with Benghazi. They, they admitted they did this with Benghazi. They, they had 27 different investigations to try to batter Hillary Clinton before the 2016 campaign. And at the time, Kevin McCarthy even bragged, look at her poll numbers. They're down because of these Benghazi investigations. And so what they want to do now is they know that most people out there, don't read everything, don't see, you know, get to the end of the, every story. They get impressions. So as many headlines and sound bites that they can generate with Biden impeachment, Biden impeachment, like Hillary email, it's good for them. They don't have to win. They don't have to prove the case. And how do you cover this as, as a reporter if indeed you're kind of aiding and abetting this cynical and one can say baseless use of the impeachment tool at this stage of the game. I mean, all the other impeachments we've had, you know, whether it was Nixon and Watergate, Clinton, and 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 and, and, and the White House affair, the two Trump impeachments, we when the inquiries began, we all knew what they were about. There was a break-in. Nixon tried to cover it up. Clinton had an affair. He lied about it. We knew about the phone call with Zelensky. We had the quasi-transcript of it. We saw what Trump did with our own eyes on January 6th. There wasn't an impeachment inquiry to see if they could find evidence to, you know, to support an impeachment inquiry, which is what they're doing at this stage. They say, we're out there you know, with an inquiry to see if we can find evidence. We, and so 
you know, how the press covers this sort of absurd development is a challenge for it. Because if you go along, if you go along with this and cover it straight, you are doing what they want. You are helping them weaponize impeachment and and and, and you know, and poison the national discourse. And if you treat Trump as just an you know the usual candidate and stick to horse race questions, you're normalizing a guy who called for suspending the Constitution and who tried to you know, encourage the violent overthrow of the U.S. government. Yeah, worse, you know. I mean, um, in the Trump interview with Welker, he allegedly refers uh, to uh, Jack Smith, who's leading the DOJ, uh, uh, the special counsel investigation of him, um, as deranged. In other words, he's working the jury, you know, and we're, he's getting yeah. a platform to work the jury. Um, when you think of how much gets happens on Capitol Hill that nobody ever covers, how many hearings happen on nobody and Capitol Hill that nobody covers, how much stuff the White House does, including good stuff for lots of people that nobody ever covers, you got to ask yourself why do they feel like they have to cover this? Why, if this is a complete sham, you know, no evidence, complete bullshit, a political stunt, you know, why cover it? Um, and, uh, you know, or just, you know, give it a passing reference and move on, but they will fall for the bait and the Republicans know they will take the bait I mean, and that's, that will corrupt American political discourse in the year ahead. Um, if one side's behaving recklessly and irresponsible and you tr treat it as an equal to the other side, you're doing that you know, the reckless and irresponsible side, a tremendous favor. And the media, you know, has, you know, it's kind of a, it's, it's anthropology, it's sociology. It has this strong desire not to be seen as weighing in on one side or the other or, or being accused of being unfair and, 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 and imbalanced. And so um, it sort of bends over backwards sometimes to give both sides their say. And, but that is not serving the public. It's not being a truth teller. I mean, to me, the story is at this point in time, if you're covering it, that the Republicans are proceeding with a sham impeachment. Okay. So that should be the lead in, uh, all the time. Uh, but it won't be because if you do, you say that every day, um, you'll sound silly and you'll sound, it's loaded, and then Kevin McCarthy will wag a finger at you and say you're not being fair. And then CNN's new president will get worried that they're being biased and they're losing audience share. And, you know, all this stuff you know happens, and it just becomes very difficult to to tell a truth that is a let's call it a weighted truth, a truth that is truly weighted against a particular side, a particular political party, a particular political person. And they don't want to do it. It took them forever to figure out that they could get away with calling Trump a liar. Um, and they've, you know, and, and the Times and others have, have finally, you know, finally got around to that. But they still, you know, one small, one very small um, example that I saw since I bring up the Times, and I don't mean to pick on the Times, but they're the number one um, media outlet here in terms of respectable journalism. And others do this too. But they did a story this week about House Republicans who are against military assistance for Ukraine, even though they have 
firms in their own districts that are manufacturing bullets, missiles, tanks that are going to Ukraine. So these people are getting work and benefiting from this, but they're still against military assistance. And one of these guys happens to be our favorite representative, Jim Jordan of Ohio. And they went to him for a quote on this. And he said, well, my constituents are still against big spending. And I don't see why we're spending time helping Ukraine while the Biden administration is ignoring what happened in East Palestine, the train derailment, and in Hawaii, the wildfires in Maui. And then they printed that whole quote and they moved on. Wait a second. The Biden administration sent the uh, FEMA, EPA, CDC, you know, uh, scores of agencies to East Palestine to help. They went knocking door to door to help people. And of course, Biden was just in Maui and there's federal assistance going there now. So it's, it's, it's a demonstrable lie that the Biden administration is ignoring these places. You can argue they're not doing enough. Maybe he should have gone to Ohio when he didn't, but he's, they're not ignoring that. And the Times just prints this lie in this story and allows it to stand. Doesn't even say Democrats disagree with us. Uh, and I realize that, you know, it, we're in a war. It sounds hyperbolic and extreme, but I think we're in a war to save or preserve or protect democracy against anti-democratic and authoritarian and autocratic impulses symbolized and embodied in Donald Trump, but extending far beyond him. And the number one weapon in any war like that is disinformation. That's the weapon. Disinformation. And if the media, which really needs a strong democracy by and large to survive, the serious media, um, news media, then uh, it has to realize that that they're reporting from a war zone. First time I'm thinking of this, David, they are reporting from a war zone. And we all know when you report from a war zone, it's a little bit different. You don't say, you know, and today the German Nazi forces did this, you know, in, in response to reporting on what the Americans did, right? It's uh, it's it's a, it's a different thing to be in the trenches with with your with your own side, but they don't see it that way. They don't want to see it that way. They worry about being labeled as being partisan or advocates, and um, the other the other side, the Republicans, the conservatives, the authoritarians know that, and they're using it to their advantage. Absolutely right. Absolutely right that journalism and journalists need a strong democracy. But the reciprocal is also true, and that is democracy needs strong journalism. And journalism is not about balance. Journalism is not about bipartisanship. Journalism is about seeking the truth. And if one side is offering the truth and the other side is offering lies, it does not only do the reader no service, but it actually runs contrary to the mission of journalism to report the lies as though they were the truth um, and uh, to report disinformation as though it were the same as information. So I agree with you wholeheartedly. And one of the reasons I admire you is you are always out there telling it like it is. And frankly, Mother Jones is also a publication that's out there telling it like it is. Uh, and in times like these, voices like yours are 
exceptionally important. American psychosis um, is a good, but also an important book. I encourage people to go out and get it in the paperback. Um, uh, congrats on that hurdle. Uh, uh, condolences on the fact that I'm sure, knowing you, that you now feel obligated to write another book. Um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, I know that particular uh, psychosis personally, and, you know, it only leads to pain, uh, but it's good for the rest of us. So uh, good luck with that. Hopefully you'll come back again soon. And uh, uh, in the meantime, thanks very much. Thank you, David.